0: It's the moment you've all been waiting for. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo.
1: That's eight minutes after eight. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, this morning on the Forum at 8... We are going to take a snapshot of what's happening across the African continent. Uh, We have a number of countries going to the polls in the month of August, and uh, those should be very interesting. But also, of course, we look at uh, and try to explore the reasons why the ruling elite on the African continent cling to power. Um, And very often, uh, people continue to suffer. The economies in countries continue to suffer, and yet the leaders will rather change the Constitution to remain in power instead of making way for others uh, to perhaps try and see what they can do to propel that country forward. So what is happening on the African continent? And of course uh, we will try to touch on as many of the stories as we can but of course you are most welcome to call in on 0891 104208 and perhaps there's a country that we haven't touched on that you would like us to talk about. You're most welcome to raise that with us. 40938 is our SMS line number and you can also tweet or Facebook us at AMLive on SAFM. And joining us for the conversation this morning in our Joburg studio, uh, Stephanie Walters, who's a Central Africa analyst and head of peace and security research program at ISS. Thanks so much for coming through.
2: Thanks for having me. Good
1: morning. And we also have, joining us on the line, a pan-Africanist and wide-ranging experience uh, working across the African continent on governance and development, um, Brian Kagoro. And thanks for your time as well, Brian.
3: Thank you for having me on your show.
1: So let's start um, at the beginning with the countries going to uh, the polls. And uh, where we're going to start, of course, we've got Kenya going to the polls, Rwanda, uh, we also have Angola and uh, perhaps Kenya is a good place to start this conversation. Uh, Last week uh, on this very show, we were talking about uh, women and uh, women marching because they are concerned of uh, the eruption of fresh violence as we saw in 2007, 2008 after the elections there. So how would you characterize Kenya going into this election, Stephanie?
2: Well, I think it's it's a tense situation. Um, certainly, it's not a government that is um, uh, tolerating the kinds of um, different kinds of democratic voices and activities that we would like, that we would normally um, consider to be important for free and fair elections to take place. So there has been a, a crackdown on critical voices, on critical institutions uh, ahead of these elections in Kenya. Um, I think it is... Um, of course, because of the experiences of the, of the recent history, uh, of the violence and of the kinds of ethnic tensions that we've seen, the country is on, on a knife's edge, I would say. Um, it's very important that these elections um, go forward peacefully and Even more importantly, I think also that they have credibility. I think it's very important for Kenya's uh, domestic future, also for its economic future, uh, that that the country feel, that the population feel that these elections were free and fair and that whoever does emerge as the winner is in fact the legitimate leader of Kenya. But then again,
1: the shenanigans has already started. Uh, We understand uh, that uh, one of the Electoral Commission officers, the ICT officer, has in fact gone missing. Um, So... Are we supposed to read anything into that? Also looking at uh, what happened at the deputy president's rural home, Brian?
3: Well, uh, elections are just by nature uh, tense activities. Uh, I mean, if you look at what happened in um, the United States, so the polarity, the vitriol, the visceral attacks on, on, on enemies, but the violence that characterizes uh, African elections in particular, and the link to identity uh, politics is something we must be concerned about, uh, and more so within the Kenyan context, given the post uh, 2007 election uh, violence. My sense is we are seeing intra party tensions, we are seeing inter party tensions, but also seeing uh, an unprecedented level of general discontent in the country over welfare, over governance, over corruption. And I think the abductions, the assassinations, the attacks the, have become not just a Kenyan phenomenon. It's become a characteristic that's widespread in this region, suggesting that our leaders are copying bad practices from each other.
1: And of course, um, speaking of the deputy president uh, Ruto, and um, there was an attack on his uh, family's rural compound, and uh, a police guard was injured there uh, with a machete, and his gun taken. So one can only, you know, wonder what would have happened had um, uh, Mr. Ruto and his family been there, and how that would have impacted on this particular election that is looming, Stephanie.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think, as, as as Brian rightly says, I mean, elections all over the world are are sometimes very tense moments. It's not just in Africa. I think the thing that we need to worry about um, in, in, in the East African region, but just on the continent as a whole, is the kind of manipulation and the kind of suppression of different opposition voices ahead of elections. So it's not just the election day that we should be watching. It's not just high profile attacks with like the unfortunate one we've seen now in Kenya. It's the whole entire environment. It can take years um, for, for, for a ruling party to put in place the kind of infrastructure that it that it needs in order to suppress its uh, its its opponents we saw it in burundi we've seen it in drc we've seen it in rwanda we've seen it in other countries so it's not just the electoral moment it's in fact the entire way that the government comports itself while it's in office how it, what its attitude is towards the freedom of of the media towards human rights organizations and towards opponents we've seen for example harassment uh, there aren't elections in uganda for another few years we we had elections there last year but we see harassment of opposition activists there all the time so we can we can read into the kind of political environment um, that we have in these countries long before or after elections actually do take place I think we must do that
1: and just looking at stability in that East African region um uh, if you know anything were to go wrong in Kenya you look at what's happening uh for example in Uganda as you said um, Museveni has been there for a very long time um uh, w- you know whether legitimately so or not and uh, that has been questioned severally and you also look at what's happening in Somalia there on the horn, uh, at Al-Shabaab and what's happening, just that entire region and uh, the stability thereof, what would you say that hinges on at the moment uh, Brian?
3: Well I, I, um, my view is that Sadak is more unstable than that region at the moment but then we can discuss that later I think what has happened in East Africa is a conflation of party and state and a conflation of uh, the securocraticism um, and uh, uh, the state and the party, as well as the um, embeddedness of some of the political class and the security class in the economy. So although we have tensions that tend to take an identity nature, uh, the real battle going on in East Africa is a battle for resources, whether it's oil, diamonds, gold or the wealth of Ogaden out of the cost in uh, in Somalia. So we characterize most of these things in the simplistic narrative of terror. But what essentially is going on under uh, the surface uh, and why it is so intractable is because the fight is for much more than just um, an ideological or even fundamentalist perspective of the world. That is simply an alibi. Um, If you take, for example, the fight in Kenya, uh, the fight in Uganda. Uganda perhaps may not have been in the mess that it is in had they not discovered oil in the Lake Albert region. Uh, and that is the same with what's happening in Kenya, with oil being discovered in Turkana uh, and new wealth being discovered. We're seeing more and more uh, politically elites that are unwilling to let go of power uh, because the possibilities of eating. And so it's not just the rent seeking class, it's also You have to be mindful that part of that political elite in East Africa is actually also the economic elite. That in the moment of privatization of state-owned enterprises and other entities in Kenya, for example, uh, components of the political elite uh, uh, stripped those assets, uh, took over portions of those industries. So they are both uh, the political actors as well as the economic actors. So I think that in our analysis, it's not just longevity of office. Longevity of office is not the marker of instability in most of those countries. This is the economic interest that we must be looking at. Because, look, if longevity of office was the only marker of instability, Tanzania would have been the most unstable country, and so would have been Zambia, because Kaunda and uh, Nyerere were in office for a long time. Uh, And Germany would be very unstable because Merkel has been in office for a long time. I think that there are much more fundamental things that we must analyze in terms of what is the source of instability.
2: Stephanie? Look, I, I think I, I do agree that once once you add to, into the mix um, the kinds of resources like oil and gold and these these, these sort of... Big-ticket items that can move an economy from a middle level to a high-high level uh, economy, and in theory should yeah. lead to higher GDP growth and, and an improved situation for citizens. I do think that that plays a role. I think that though that even in countries where we haven't yet had that, even in Uganda prior to uh, oil discovery and in, in Kenya as well, we had predatory states and we had predatory elites. Like Brian rightly says, I mean often there's a conflation between an economic elite and a political elite, or a political elite starts out being a political and becomes an economic elite, and vice versa. I think the bottom line is corruption and governance. We have very poor governance in Africa. We don't have enough accountability of of these ruling parties, of these ruling regimes. at least we continue to have too much corruption. Uh, whether whether that be um, something that affects the way in which elections are run or the way in which state resources are managed, and often you know those are those are issues that overlap as well. And I think that that is fundamentally one of the key issues. And it's it's also why we see a people able to stay in office for such long lengthy periods of time, um, and why we can see uh, uh, governments of certain regions, and it's not just East Africa by any uh, stretch of the imagination, change constitutions, manipulate courts, and have the The African Union and some of the regional organizations not say anything. There isn't enough of a standard, a high high enough standard of governance uh, about political performance, about um, um, providing services, about transparency and, and, and on corruption issues on the continent. And I think that's very fundamental, whether or not you are a resource rich state or even a resource poor state.
1: And then you have, of course, uh, Tanzania that Brian mentioned in passing there, uh, John Makufuli and uh, Tanzania feeling the strain of, you know, refugees uh, coming into that country. They have for the longest time been that country, uh, you know, that would offer a refuge to people running away from um, strife in other countries. But um, Makufuli, he's now asked uh, the Burundians to start going back home. And that hasn't gone down
2: too well. Stephanie? No, that hasn't gone down too well. I mean, Burundi is a particularly acute um, case at the moment. We've seen uh, President Nkurunziza hanging on to power for a, a, for all intents and purposes, what is a third mandate, uh, his interpretation of the Arusha Accords versus the general interpretation. And this was something that he managed to get the constitutional court to agree with. And we've seen since 2015, really an absolute worsening of the humanitarian situation, a dramatic decline in the economic conditions in that country. Um, I think, that Nkurunziza has relied on some very important regional allies, notably Tanzania, but also the DRC, in order to uh, to, to 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 stay in office. The East African Community is uh, in charge of mediating in that conflict between the opposition and the and the Burundian uh, government. It hasn't made a lot of progress. In fact, former President Benjamin Benjamin Mcappa is in charge of that, um, and unfortunately, the East African Community does not want to seem to use the kind of leverage which it would. Would be able to use, notably, uh, economic sanctions, which I think would make a dramatic difference in Burundi, um, and it will have its reasons for that. Um, but we are really in a status quo uh, where the population is suffering. Um, it's it's essentially the Burundian elite which is which is still being uh, still able to stay afloat. But that too, we question how much longer they're going to be able to do that, given the worsening economic situation and the absence of budgetary support from a wide variety of international donors. And if you've just tuned in, we're talking about what's happening across the
1: african continent and of course uh, we want to hear what is top of mind for you as well 0891104208 which country would you like to hone in on specifically and what is going on there what are the issues that you would like to highlight and you can call us and you can also uh tweet or facebook us at am live on safm or you can uh, send us an sms to the number 40938 Well, thanks for tuning in. And this morning on the Forum at 8, we are asking what is happening across the African continent? The lines are open 891 104208 Speaking this morning to Brian Kagoro, who is a Pan-Africanist with wide-ranging experience working across the African continent on governance and development. He's also a constitutional and international economic relations lawyer. And we have in studio uh, Stephanie Walters, who is a Central Africa analyst and head of peace and security research program at ISS. And, uh, we have started, we're coming down now, uh, Burundi. And, uh, Brian, if you'd like to weigh in on Burundi, but I also want to, uh, come down to Rwanda as well, uh, whilst we at that, uh, Kagame, they also going to the polls in August and, uh, constitutional amendments there, uh, interesting constitutional amendments in Rwanda. Uh, but let's start by getting your view on what's happening in Burundi.
3: Um, I I think Burundi is a sad, sad case. Uh, Burundi reflects a betrayal that uh, people within nation states suffer each time when there's been conflict and there are negotiations that are held in some Porsche hotel somewhere in a foreign capital, albeit on the African continent. And the deal-making is about ensuring that you end the conflict and appease the belligerents. There are no fun, there's not significant fundamental attention paid to the institution building and the guarantees and the guarantors that must accompany it. Uh, we assume uh, that uh, sovereignty is whatever is determined by the, uh, uh, the party. that, that, that. So, so, Burundi, the human carnage, as well as, I suppose, the complexity of it, makes it impossible. I, I am not totally persuaded that sanctions would work. Much of the investment of the Burundian elite is not in Burundi. So imposing sanctions would simply hurt ordinary Burundians. Uh, Most of the Burundi elite has invested heavily in real estate in Kenya, in Uganda, and across the rest of the region. And any attempt to impose sanctions would essentially hurt the economies of the riparian states and not necessarily uh, that of uh, the elite in Burundi. So my sense is you are going to end up strengthening the hands of the elite as opposed to weakening uh, their hold and power, because the siphoning of the state and the complex flow of money in that region amongst the elites is something that I think we need to sufficiently apply our minds uh, to. Equally so, if you are the South Sudanese elite, and most of their investments are in countries like Uganda, like Kenya, elsewhere, and overseas, of course. And so imposing sanctions on them in South Sudan Uh, will not have the ultimate effect of weakening their hands. It will simply mean uh, that they will hide their wealth more effectively in their apparent state. I think we need a much more robust um, solution to Burundi. I think East Africa and and the African Union has been walking eggshells around the Burundi issue.
1: And then uh, let's talk about Rwanda and uh, President Kagame there. And... um, as I said, uh, some interesting developments with regard to constitutional change, not only to uh, the terms uh, the um, of office, how long you can remain in office for, but um, also uh, one that speaks to the security apparatus within the country stephanie
2: sure i mean i i 'll get back to the question of sanctions uh, just very briefly. I think for me, the question of sanctions is not about imposing them on individuals as. Uh, as the EU and the United States have done, for example, in neighboring DRC. Uh, I think that that has an, an important impact as well in weakening the structures of elites and creating um, uncertainty, which is important in, in I think, dynamics where you have a leader and an elite clinging to power. But in, in, in Burundi, I think it's important that, that those sanctions, in fact, come from the region. And I'm talking more about um, uh, imposing uh, blockages on exports and imports. And ultimately, what you want to do is weaken that regime um, and get it to a negotiating table. And part of that... That is about uh, minimizing its ability to pay, for example, some of the, pel- the or to to maintain the pillars of the regime, including the army and things like that. So I think that's 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 a possibility one has to look at. Um, obviously, what we want is a negotiated settlement. We want the different parties to sit at the table and come up with an agreement that will lead Burundi to a to a stable future. But on Rwanda, I think you know. Absolutely, the question uh, um, is an important one. And it's probably one of the most difficult examples that we have on the continent where we have uh, highly polarized views around is Kagame doing the right thing for his country or isn't he? There are those who feel that um, the way in which he runs Uh, Rwanda, uh, the fact that he's made it look to the outside world as though it's a a very stable country where corruption is not tolerated, that is successful, that has um, uh, significant economic growth. Some people believe that. Uh, and feel that that is the kind of approach that justifies perhaps not having as many political freedoms um, as, as others would like it. Others feel that it's a sham, uh, that in fact Kagame, like many others, is simply trying to cling to office um, and that he wants to maintain control at all costs, um, but has been very savvy about his uh, public relations. Um, so entertaining large international conferences, making friends with some key international players, people like Tony Blair, and using, having them champion him. And his cause, um, and so that's a that's a country where people have very distinct views. I think we have significant evidence that there are. Um, some, some, some very serious human rights violations going on in Rwanda. We have most of Rwanda's opposition either in exile or in prison in Rwanda. In South Africa, we have seen political assassinations sponsored by the Rwandan state. So my view is that this is a country that has, uh, has, has tried to eliminate uh, critical voices and opposition voices because it wa- Kagame and the RPF want to stay in control. And so this election um, that's coming up is to me not, uh, it's nothing but a, a, an exercise in box to Uh, Elections have to take place every few years in Rwanda, and that's what this next one is essentially all about. It's not about uh, voices um, and and political change. Brian?
3: Um, I totally uh, disagree on some fundamentals. I don't visit Rwanda. I wrote my um, uh, first uh, law uh, dissertation on Rwanda in 1994 as the genocide uh, unfolded. I go to Rwanda four times um, a year, every year. So I have much more than a casual understanding. Um, Is Rwanda perfect in terms of civil liberties? No, it's not. Uh, Neither is South Africa, nor anybody, nor any of our countries, not even the United States. Are there violations of political uh, civil liberties? You expect them in every state. The issue that has been fundamental on the continent is the following. Do you have a leadership that is able to deliver service to its people? And are people able to participate at the local level? So if you take, uh, whether it's Ubu he, uh, Agashiro, and the forms of participation at the local level, and South Africa is still struggling, if you take South Africa, with racism, still struggling with basic things like a child going to school with the hairstyle that they please. Now, if we were to focus on those things, there's a huge... Uh, there's a huge narrative that could emerge. What a country, how long does a country take to emerge out of a genocide in which half a million people plus, 800,000 people die. When do you think you sufficiently establish sufficient security uh, uh, for you to, to... I mean, it takes long. So I get the impression sometimes that we expect, we are tolerant of things that happen in democracies like South Africa, where we are saying it's part of healing from the past. And when you deal with it in Rwanda, we call it a sham. I think that's misanalysis. It's your favorite time of the morning. The forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo. Favorite time of the morning on AM
4: Live.
1: And thanks for tuning in to AM Live. The calls are coming in thick and fast. We're trying. We haven't spoken about Kabila. We haven't spoken about uh, Dos Santos in Angola. We haven't spoken about Mugabe or so many others. As I said, we are trying our best to run through as many of the issues on the continent as we can uh, with our guests this morning, Brian uh, Carojo, uh, 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 Brian Kagoro and uh, Stephanie Walters. And uh, Brian, let me just get you to finish uh, your uh, point that you were making before the break, and then we'll take some calls on 891
3: Yeah, Just let me just clarify. Patrick Karajaya, who died in South Africa, I do not have a court case as yet. And I do not, we do not have a lawyer. So I will not say he was assassinated by the Rwandan state. Patrick Karigea was not a member of the opposition. Patrick, Patrick Karigea was a director of military intelligence in Rwanda. Uh, Patrick Karajaya came to South Africa gave a press conference in which he called for the overthrow of Kagame for whatever disagreements they may have so my sense is let's not lump official opposition which may have been harassed with disaffected members of the state and then it's useful for us to look at the fundamental Judge Rwanda according to Rwanda not using a South African or American standards is there participation at the local level There is a lot of participation in deciding social policy, in deciding economic policy, in even deciding how people, how government ministers are performing. I do not know any other country where the level of participation and ability of citizens to uh, hold their rulers or their uh, parliamentarians and representatives to account is as high as Rwanda. Is there something that should reform in Rwanda? Of course there is. There are a lot of things that should reform in Rwanda. Even the Rwandans themselves know this. The media should be much freer uh, the way you conduct uh, political opposition. But the people who are out there voting are not stooges. They are people who are voting based on both their imagination and their memory. Their memory of 1994, their imagination of what's possible uh, given the thrust of development. It's the only country where corruption on the continent is very low. It's the only country where ministers are fired for not doing well. It's the only country where Ordinary citizens get to meet with their president to express what is not happening. Now, it may be imperfect to me as a Zimbabwean. It may be imperfect to me as a South African because it's not anywhere close to this country where the right, freedom of expression means the right to, um, to insult to those who rule us and the ability to rant in the media, although you're going to go back to your shack uh, where there's no service delivery. For, for me, the issue is we've got to choose. What is it that we want when we say, what is liberty to a poor person in Africa? What is the quality of that freedom? Is it purely to be like an American, like a British, like everybody else, have a free media which is dominated by uh, elite capitalist interests, or have the right to demonstrate where you will never, after you've demonstrated, actually get the quality service? Because the state is captured either by a private elite, or it's captured by the political elites. For me, uh, I think that an understanding of Rwanda needs to take off the rose-tinted uh, glasses of uh, what is a pure liberal democracy. To asking, is this thing delivering service to these people? Is it delivering quality of life? Because at the end of the day, that's one of the basic uh, freedoms that we all need. A life that's dignified.
1: And I wonder how most African citizens would respond to that last question. Oh wait, nine one one zero four two zero eight. Our guests, uh, just to remind you, Stephanie Walters and Brian Kagoro. And uh, we're taking your calls now, starting with Christopher in Johannesburg. Morning, Christopher. Ah, okay. We'll come back to Christopher. Let's try Nsantla in Durban. Good morning, Nsantla.
5: Good morning, Sakina. Good morning, everyone.
1: Welcome. Uh,
3: good
5: morning. Good Uh You know, we we can talk about everything, but as long as SADDEC, ECOWAS, AU, are not taking action against the undemocratic procedures that are continuing there in Zimbabwe. You know, Robert Mugabe is a hero, but he is turning himself into a villain. You can't have a country where more than 5 million people are displaced from your country and we are hoping that you are governing democratically. And South Africa should play a leading role in this case, particularly South South Africa and Nigeria, to make sure that that the diaspora vote in 2018 in Zimbabwe are allowed to to, to participate in these elections. I am prepared to, with my original party, of course, the PRM, we are discussing these things. How can we ask the South African government to the diaspora votes, particularly here in South Africa, to take part in the democratic elections in, 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 in Zimbabwe. If Mugabe would uh, say his government through the will of the people, he must allow the diaspora votes, wherever they are to vote. So that, that we agree that Mugabe is a democrat. But for now, we see him as a dictator able to push people outside the country because of hunger and other things so that he will continue to loot in the state as Zuma is doing here in South Africa. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. And Santa, uh, Christopher in Johannesburg, let's try that one again. Morning.
0: Morning, Sakina. Thank you very much. I just wanted to comment on Mr. Gorgoro's, uh very concerning comments and views on what is happening in Rwanda. So, Essentially, I think Mr. um, Gogoro confuses this question of elite and technocratic control with uh, broad mass participation and good governance issues. Because if one looks at what he's suggesting, he's suggesting that we should put in place absolute leaders who are able to deliver a technocratic solution Mm -hmm and then hope mm. that every leader that comes thereafter is going to be of good quality. Now, we've seen that in South Africa with uh, Thabo Mbeki and following on with Jacob Zuma. If we allow a principle uh, to exist in which we say that we can allow an autocratic leadership so long as they are good at what they do, then we open up the door to the next leader who is not a, a good uh, technocrat. And we find what we have with Jacob Zuma capture and so on. So I think Mr. Goro's comments are very, very dangerous. Uh, we should be very careful how we accept those. But also just to say that I have extensive experience on the continent. I engage at policy and grassroots level across the continent. And I think that if you have a situation where a country votes 98% in favor of one leader, then you have to ask questions about what's going on there. I was in uh, participating in a survey or... Results result of a survey done by Rich University in a conversation that we're having around African Union. And what came out there is that 90, almost 100% of the respondents uh, support, say, for example, Paul Kagame and what's happening in Rwanda. But that's a very dangerous uh, uh, understanding because when we spoke to the researchers, what we realized was that this was done out of a sense of fear as much as a sense of um, appreciation for what Kagame is doing. So we... um, so we should be very careful when we, when we just make these broad assumptions that autocratic, autocratic rulers are good and that it, because it's different from Western liberal democracy that that's an African way. It's not an African way uh, and we should be very careful.
1: Christopher in Johannesburg, thank you so much. Uh, Tawanda, uh, Chivese and also Buzwebake, I think you guys, both your comments are covered by Christopher had to say there. Uh, Charles in Cape Town, good morning. Uh, Today, morning, uh,
0: Sakina and, and your guest. Uh, I don't, uh, I disagree with your previous caller, um, because uh, this gentleman that you got there, he's done a thesis on, on the, the the country. So, and, and he's
1: Okay, Charles, tell you what, that line not great. Let's see if we can do something to get you on a better line. In the meantime, we'll speak to David in Pretoria. Good morning, David.
6: Hello, good morning, uh, SK. Well, thank you very much. I just want to say one or two points. One is, I think, what we have, uh, even in, in your studio today, uh, the panel, is, is two paradigms of looking at, at what's happening to the continent. We have, I think, uh, I would, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not absolutely kind of thinking that. I would think that Stephanie is coming from a particular perspective, and Brian is coming also slightly different perspective. So what I see is, up to now, it seems to me, we don't have the paradigm that we have developed in Africa that looks at the history of colonialism as a post-colonial problem. Because the, the case of fundamental problem that we have is, the post colonial nation state in Africa is a situation which is totally different. It, it is not the pre colonial formation where people were coming bound together with certain kind of uh, identities. It's a different kind of identity. So there's, a, there's always a struggle of how do you bring a nation state out of that one. So that is very, very important. So what we have done, I think it seems to me, post Second World War, post 1960s, we had this Western paradigm on Africa. And what that meant to us, you know the idea of election and this uh, uh, symptomatic kind of analysis but that symptomatic analysis doesn't go deep why we have in this problem so the solution is come is you know election is not working they are rigging it and therefore let's have regime change and all that and we have seen part of that one not exactly the same in libya for instance the way the west treated libya iraq and all those kinds is a living example that the western paradigm actually is not a universal paradigm, but it's a provincial paradigm that dictates their own particular policy and choices, and the consequence of that was, you know, the crime against humanity in all these places. So, paradigm issue is very important, so Brian is touching on that one. I think we need to go and see what is the paradigm that we have here, what is the analysis. And the second point is uh, the point that once uh, uh, the Ghanaian novelist uh, Ben Okri He was giving a lecture on uh, uh, Steve Vico. What he said was the West wants to see Africa on a a different time dimension, what what Fanon called it, the colonial time. The colonial time means time starts in Africa during colonialism and after colonialism, there is no time. So we have to see the history of governmental formation from a longer period of time. Europe has taken over 400, 500 years. So we can't make this quick analysis symptomatic analysis and impose on a 70 year experience those are two two very important things uh, uh, thank, thank you,
1: you. Thank you so much, uh, David, in Pretoria. Tell you what, let's get our panelists to just respond to those batch of calls, uh, that batch of calls, and then we'll take a few more, and I'll also read some of your messages. Stephanie?
2: I I just want to respond to both what David said and also what Inshlanshla said. Um, I think we have to remind ourselves that in in the situations we've been speaking about today, Kenya, Burundi, uh, Rwanda, and Uganda, just to name a few, we have had um, very clear uh, protests against the kinds of uh, activities that have been going on there um uh, uh Pushback against um, extending the mandate for Nkurunziza in Burundi was extremely public. It was sustained, it was driven by Burundian civil society groups, but also by just angry citizens, youth, women's groups going out onto the streets. We've seen similar kinds of activities in Kenya. We've seen it in in, in Uganda. We've seen attempts at it in Rwanda that have then subsequently been suppressed. We've seen it in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We saw it in the Republic of Congo, where again the President managed to change the Institution so he could stay in office beyond the age limit. So I think we have to remember that the, the the voices that we're responding to are not coming from outside the continent. They're young voices. They're diverse voices coming from on the continent. And they're asking for accountability. They're asking for transparency. They're asking for elections and they're asking Quite simply, I think, for their voices to be considered according to the constitutions that their countries have. And that's what elections are. In the DRC, we have different people saying the opposition is weak, it's not sufficiently organized. It's not for outsiders to decide whether the DRC opposition is organized or not. Elections are due to take place every five years according to the DRC's constitutions. Why why do we find it acceptable when a government says we're actually going to flout our own constitution and not hold elections as we had planned and as the constitution says? It's nobody's right to take that away from a Congolese citizen or a Burundian citizen or a Ugandan citizen and so on. I think we have to remember that. And then finally, because obviously we all want to hear what Brian has to say as well, I think what Nschlanschner said about um, the responsibility of the African Union and of SADC is really key. Um, These are the institutions that need to lead on changing norms and setting standards in Africa. Um, And they need to respond to the kinds of uh, voices that they're hearing from citizens. The African Union is able to take action against countries like Burundi um, and it, in fact, was quite bold on Burundi. It, it, it even attempted to send a, a, a peacekeeping force there. Ultimately, um, members, uh, heads of state of member countries shot that idea down. But it needs to be a stronger voice on these kinds of standards. We, we're seeing human rights violations by, on large scale in many of these these situations where we have elections becoming tense. There, there, there are clear facts that we cannot ignore about standards that are being violated. And I think we need regional organization and continental organizations to, to push back and take the lead on setting new norms.
1: Before I go to Brian, a question from Namedi, direct question to both of you. Can your guests please answer this simple question? Is Joseph Kabila currently in office constitutionally or unconstitutionally? Stephanie, before I go to Brian.
2: I'll take that one, sure. Um, I've been been working on DRC for about 20 years now, and there's absolutely no question that Kabila is in in, in office unconstitutionally. Um, The the constitutional court last year interpreted the the DRC constitution, which was adopted in 2005, and said that a particular clause that the president stays in office until he's replaced by another elected president. And this is what the Congolese government is clinging to in terms of its uh, legitimizing the current um, vacuum essentially that exists. The December 31st uh, accords, the political accords that were to to govern this transition period, in other words, after Kabila's mandate ran out on December 19th, 2016, um, was was an attempt to try and restore some legitimacy and give some structure to this period that would then lead to elections. That that accord has been essentially violated. And so now there is, I would say, uh, it's safe to say that there's there's a constitutional vacuum at the moment.
1: Brian?
3: Um, so, his constitutional mandate ran out. There was a political agreement of some sorts to extend it. <laughs> uh, de jure, he is, uh, according to law, uh, he is there uh, uh, illegally. Uh, de facto, uh, and we do have these constructions when I'm interpreting a constitution, uh, his mandate, um, if not, Use a user patient, so we can prove now that he has usurped uh, the powers of other organs of parliament. So it's not an extension that's been necessitated only by political and other exigencies. He has created the conditions for the extension, and for that reason, uh, he is both de facto and de jure uh, in, in, in office um, uh, unconstitutionally. Now, let me go back. Uh, just
1: before you go there, uh, still on, Kabila, um, and uh, I thought it interesting, when uh, the whole situation around uh, you, uh, DRC going to elections arose initially, it was said that the country did not have um, the money to actually hold the election. But now, of late, I see uh, Mr. Kabila says he never said uh, that uh, you know he would be holding elections in 18 months' time. So the question then arises, so how long will this situation then continue for
3: I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to continue for too long um, I think at the moment uh, the, the DRC is benefiting from the instability in Burundi and anticipated instability in the rest of the region so those interlocutors who have the mandate to intervene don't want uh, a conflagration in the entire region and hence the uh, fit-dragging that we're seeing I, but i think that drc at the moment uh, presents both a problem and an opportunity um a, a, a problem in the sense uh, that um, the disparate nature uh, the subtext in the drc contestation of course is a resurgence of the pre Patrice Lumumba uh regionalized uh, oppositional politics and ruling party politics and so um an election is an imperative because the constitution requires it to. but i think the region has much more than an election to worry about just it has to worry about how to keep the country together given the subtext of some of the contestations uh between katanga and the center and so on and so forth i wanted to go back to to, 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 to um, uh, the questions of rwanda and core i think one of the callers totally misunderstood um my sense is, if you go to Nushoa, for example, here in South Africa, and you ask the people in the village who their MP is, they don't know. Because here in South Africa, which supposedly is supposedly supposed to be more democratic than Rwanda, we use a party list. And the level of accountability of the member of parliament to the people is somewhat remote. I was suggesting to you that if you go beyond the grand narratives about whether the media is free or not, and so on and so forth, You go to the local level, which is at the local ward level, at the cell level. The level of participation of citizens in determining what happens in their local is unprecedented in any other country uh, that you see in Rwanda. And I know this because I have worked uh, uh, in almost every African country except Djibouti and Malta. Uh, um, So I, I have a sense of what's of what's going on. And and. And for me, this is not, I, the suggestion is not that Rwanda must uh, somehow embalm the current status uh, and be happy. Rwanda must constantly evolve, uh, because its its demography is evolving, evolving its population is evolving. Uh, and generically, what we must be careful of, is whether we have a thousand uh, 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 citizens protesting on the street or not, is that we must be careful not to lump Rwanda together with Burundi, together with Uganda. Because Rwanda, uh, whether it's by stroke of genius or some other malevolent way, is that they actually did take this third-term issue to a referendum. Now, the referendum had real people voting. Now, none of us have the right to say the people that voted don't have sufficient mental capacity, or all of them do it out of fear. I've met people who genuinely love their president in Rwanda. You know, and I've met people who genuinely believe in what's going on, and it's, it's useful for us not to believe that there is no Jacob Zuma supporter in South Africa, for example. There's no Robert Mugabe supporter in Zimbabwe. That everyone who supports Robert Mugabe does so out of fear. And Now, talking about Mugabe, the Zimbabwean Constitution currently currently um, requires that everyone should be should be able to vote. Now. The Zimbabwean state does not have the infrastructure to administer the diaspora vote. And their instinctive response has been to curtail that diaspora uh, 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 vote for two reasons. I suppose politically it is dangerous for them, and I think, secondly, it's an issue of not having the infrastructure for verification of residency, verification of the identity, and so on and so forth. My own sense is uh, the problem is one of incompetence, uh, an incompetence that's married to political fears. Uh, And whether or not ZANU-PF will win, because in the last, according to Afrobarometer, they suggest that ZANU-PF could do better than the opposition. In the last election, ZANU-PF seemed to have done better, whether rigged or not rigged. It really is a secondary inquiry. I think what cannot be taken away is that the constitutional opposition, according to the 2013 Zimbabwean Constitution, is that every person who is a Zimbabwean should be able to vote. And the distinction between diaspora and non-diaspora does not arise in terms of that constitution. All right. And lastly, coming in... Sorry, I just wanted to make a small point about South Africa.
4: Mm-hmm. So you had...
3: Okay, all right.
1: All right, let me just take two yeah. quick calls and then we'll uh, wrap it up. We're fast running out of time. Leon in Cape Town, good morning.
4: Good morning, Sakina. Morning, and thank you for passing me the, 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 the phone. Actually, I want to find out if Mr. Brian is living in in the health and in Africa. Because what he's tending to talk about the Rwanda, it's like, I don't know, I, I'm sorry to say that, but it's like someone paying to to, to, to say to, to be a PR about the Rwanda. Because Rwanda Kagame is, is a dictator. And we, we're sitting here in South Africa or in Cape Town, you know, having nice wine, but we don't know what is the reality on the ground. There's half of the population of Rwanda who are in the DRC, the Hutus. Actually, Kagame right now it's just an ethnic, uh, let's say, ethnic. Uh, uh, what can I say, they, they, they are just running the country with one ethnic the the, the, the truth is. and it, i i believe what he's trying to say that you no know, people are happy there or or they are governing very nicely it is totally wrong and I, I want also to add something about the, the the congo problem in congo the provincial and the senate they've been sitting there for the past 10 years because they say that no there's no money to do election and whatever and when when Mr. Bryan is talking about the, the the constitutional court that uh, uh, did uh, speak about the, the interpretation of the of the constitution, there's no law in Congo. Those people are sitting there and are being manipulated by the power, by, by Kabila.
1: All right, Leon in Cape Town. Thanks for the call. Staying in Cape Town, Charles. Good morning to you.
0: I uh, again I'm your guest. I don't ask your your your, your guest to to. to comment on why America got uh, a command center in Africa. And they are the reason for the destabilization of Northern Africa, Libya, Egypt and all those those things. And now, with this command center, I, I, I can't put it past him that they're destabilizing Africa.
1: All right, that line, still not playing ball. But uh, let me give my guests like 30 seconds just to wrap it and I take uh, cognizance of the messages coming through where people are saying maybe we should look at having these discussions more often, um, be it a weekly or bi-weekly kind of setup, but we should talk about what's happening across the rest of the continent more often. Stephanie?
2: Yeah, I just want to maybe as a final word, you know, emphasize um, I think like I said earlier, there are facts that speak for themselves. In the DRC, we have dramatic human rights violations being committed by the Congolese army. Uh, we have African countries voting against uh, the, co- this, the Constitution of Commissions of Inquiries into those human rights violations. I use that as an example, but there are many others. I think those are the kinds of things that we need to discuss. We need to try and make progress on that. We need to try and uh, set standards and have some real understanding uh, not just of of, of, of of elite dynamics, but what it actually means uh, for population to live in those countries and hear those voices more and, re- and remember and remind ourselves that those are the voices that we should be listening to, not the small uh, 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 elite voices that we hear so much of. Thank you. And uh, Brian?
3: There are imperial interests and designs on Africa. As we analyze the uh, dereliction of duty by our own regimes and the tyranny by these regimes, Let's not forget Libya. Let's not forget imperial designs and interests on African resources. And also an unstable Africa is good for business.
1: All right. Thank you so much to our guest this morning. And that uh, final voice there was Brian Kagoro. And uh, we also had Stephanie Walters with us. And thanks for your fantastic participation.